Welcome on in to the Superintendent Radio Network and episode 21 of Beyond the Page, the podcast that goes a little deeper into some of the stories and columns in Golf Course Industry Magazine. I'm Golf Course Industry Managing Editor Matt Lowell, and I'll be joined in this episode by Amanda Fontaine. She's the superintendent at Ledges Golf Club in South Hadley, Massachusetts, and by America's greenkeeper himself, Matthew Wharton. Up first, Amanda and her family are the subject of a fantastic Guy Cipriano cover story in our July issue. A former college and professional hockey player, Amanda was literally raised on the course. Her father, Michael, was a golf course superintendent for more than 25 years. He was the superintendent at Ledges for more than 15 years, and he's now the club's general manager. Her younger sister, Maddie, also raised on the course, now works in the club's accounting and restaurant departments. It is a great story all around. I think you'll love listening to Amanda. You'll love reading her story online this month as well. Matthew Wharton is a familiar name and voice to regular listeners, and he's back this month to talk about both his June and his July columns. The first is an open letter to the USGA that sparked some strong conversation, at least on Twitter. And the second column is a suggestion to all turf bros to remove one word from their vocabulary. Matthew Wharton and Amanda Fontaine on Beyond the Page after the break. My first guest again on this episode of Beyond the Page is one of the four folks who are on the cover of the July issue. There is Michael Fontaine and Maddie Fontaine and Simba Fontaine. And I'm talking today with Amanda Fontaine. She is the superintendent at the Ledges Golf Club in South Hadley, Massachusetts. A great story in the July issue online a little later this week, written by editor-in-chief Guy Cipriano. Amanda, how you doing? I'm good. How are you today? Good. I know right now, as we record this, you are getting some of the after effects of Elsa, and I believe you described it as a bit of a monsoon, so you're you're huddling down doing some paperwork in the maintenance facility, right? Yep, that's about right. I can only try and stay dry right now. So you came back to the ledges fairly recently, and you are really, really young. You're only 27. You're already a head superintendent. Uh, what have the first couple of seasons as a head superintendent been like for someone who's been on the golf course since, gosh, you were probably, what, a year, year and a half old, the first time your dad took you out on the course? I had to been younger than that. I <laughs> just, you know, I think I have pictures before I could even walk on a walker in the uh, on the practice green. But, I mean, yeah, I just started back at the ledges in January and, you know, picking up where, uh, where everyone else left off, you know, had a brand new mechanic or mechanic that we had for many years, just retired. And I think we had maybe two retired guys return and everyone else is brand new. So, you know, it's, it's easier than what it sounds like. It's, you know, everyone has a clean slate so everyone can be trained up the the way we want to be trained and there's no, you know, trying to break bad habits or anything like that. But, um, the guys that are returning were there when I was there last, uh, like three years ago. So, you know, they 
have uh, have a good idea of how I work and how I expect things to be. And so it's it's easy because everyone else seems to look up to them, and because they know what they're doing, it's easy to you know trust them and not have to worry about training every single person that's there. But so far, it's just been every day, every week, a battle just trying to get everything done, you know, learning as I go, trying to figure out the, you know, irrigation system, how everything works with that. Uh, it's a, I think, you know, this year's the 20th year the golf course has been around. So everything seems to be newer, but still, you know, back from the 90s. So that's a little tough to figure out. Um, and it's all new to me, you know, the past couple of years I've been working with, Toro heads and you know we have a hunter system so it's you know trying to figure out all new things but other than that you know every day is a battle like I said and it's just trying to trying to get through it's easier you know than just diving in feet first and not having any support uh like you were talking about before my dad is the general manager and he you know was the superintendent for say this is his 16th year there so he has a good amount of knowledge about the property and you know I try not to call him every day but you know sometimes I have to you know I'm looking around for an irrigation box and I'm like I know you said you worked on it and where'd you put it and he's like oh it's over here and you know over in the rough somewhere and I'll throw a screwdriver and say see it's right there how come you didn't know it was there I was like oh well why I called and asked. So, you know, he's a a good person to ask questions and figure stuff out before I have to go crazy. And then, you know, the other assistants that were there while I was there are within shouting distance, you know, at just local courses around here. And, you know, everyone, everyone wants to help and that just makes everything a lot easier. I mentioned this in the intro, and it's obviously a big part of the story, but if folks don't know your dad, Michael, as you just said, was the superintendent at the Ledges from the time you were 11 until the time you were hired earlier this year. I know you just said you don't want to rely on him and call him every day for every little thing, but what is your what is your process like? Because you do have such a great resource, not just your dad, but you have your predecessor there on the property every day it's it's a it's a tool that a lot of superintendents just don't have yeah so before like uh when i went to lockmere three years ago he well we worked for a management company and he took over the contract was up and they wanted to renew the contract and they took over not only the maintenance department but the, the clubhouse itself um, so he stepped up as the general manager, and then they hired a superintendent that, excuse me, was not me. I I don't even I don't I don't even think I applied, but um, yeah, I moved up to New Hampshire for a couple of years, and so they went through. They tried with different superintendents while he was, you know, trying to stay in the clubhouse and get things up to par up there. Um, and then, you know, it's just the job opened up again, and he told me, and I was like, I guess I'll apply now. You know, I have a little bit more experience. I don't feel like I'm just 
getting it because I'm here. You know, I've worked hard, you know, to learn everything that I've learned and, you know, went to school in the time that I was away and, you know, got my certificate from UMass, had years of, uh, of training that wasn't, you know, at the place that I've always been. So I, the diversifying myself was always a, always a thing I wanted to do, but I just never knew how to make the leap and do it. And then I got a, an opportunity to go up to New Hampshire and I, you know, it was a, it was a great decision that I made for myself and, you know, it only made going back that much easier with all this new information and all these new, you know, ways of doing things. But, um, when it comes to asking him about stuff, I really, you know, try, if it's something that, you know, I know that he's going to know the answer to, you know, the things that I still haven't, um, you know, it's my first year. I don't, you know, know the inner workings of the pump house off the top of my head. So I'll call him and ask a question about that because he's the one who installed it. He's the one who knows how it works. Um, you know, but if it's a problem that I have, I have no problem working out on my own. I have, I'm not going to go call him about, Hey, which direction do you think we should mow the practice green today? Like, it's not an everyday, what do you think I should do kind of thing? It's a, huh, you know, really stumped or if I'm going to do more damage trying to figure it out if I was all alone, but if I have the resources, like no shame in asking if I, if he wasn't there, you know, there were the other, you know, the superintendent, I, I mean, the assistant and the super now superintendent that I was working with there before I left, he's a, you know, fountain of knowledge as well. And I have no problem asking him either. You know, I'd rather, if people have the answers, I have no shame calling and asking, you know, it's only going to build relationships with others and ultimately help me out. One of the things that Guy wrote about a lot in the story was just your history on golf courses and your history as a golf family. You and your younger sister, Maddie, both really raised on the course, and there are a couple of great photos. One made it into the layout and one did not. Uh, It's a great photo of you as a baby. You're smiling and laughing, and your dad, Michael, is exhausted, hunched over the wheel of a golf car. And the other one is that is in there, uh, thank goodness, had to get one of them in, is a photo of you, I don't know, you're maybe a year and a half, two years old, you're in coveralls, you're wearing this kind of like a flowery sun hat, and you're, you're in an irrigation ditch, and then it's right on top of another photo of you today, this year, in an irrigation ditch. So the difference between age probably two and age 27. Um, there are not a lot of father-daughter superintendent combinations in general, certainly not at the same club. Have you come across in your career any other father-daughter superintendent combinations? I'm not saying you're the only one, but you, there can't be very many. Uh, no, I haven't run across that any uh, ever, really. You know, it's, it's rare enough to see, you know, father-son. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know a, a bunch of guys who... You know, their dads are also supers elsewhere, but it's never at the same course and never never really father-daughter. 
let's go back in time to your childhood, and then you've got a great story coming up through uh, school and college, and, and then obviously the start of your career. So you said you were, you know, you couldn't even walk by the time your dad was starting to take you on to the course. What was what was your childhood on the golf course like? How often would you go out? What were you doing? Was it kind of a learning thing, or was it just this wonderful playground to go to? Well, I mean, like I said before, there's pictures of me, you know, in the walker on the practice green, just scooting around with a putter in my hand, um, you know, always like uh so the golf course that we there that he worked on i had friends that lived there as well um it was part of uh prep school in north mount herman that i ended up going to um and they were all it was faculty housing on the golf course and so all my friends were faculty kids um and so we would all play you know make sandcastles in the bunkers and you know just ride our bikes around the golf course pretty much and, you know, my house was right around the corner uh, from the golf course. So, you know, my dad would be able to drive the golf cart home and get me off the bus and then bring me to the golf course and, you know, do anything we really wanted there. So it was like it was just our our playground for a while. And then when I was old enough to start playing golf, I was there during the summers, gosh, every day pretty much just playing and so I played more rounds than I could ever count um and yeah it was a little nine hole course so one of my buddies and I would walk it every day and you know some days we'd go play 36 holes and just keep walking and you know I'd walk to the golf course with my clubs on my back and walk home afterwards with them (laughs) just keep you know every day keep going back um but yeah when he went to the ledges. It would. It's obviously a little bit longer of a commute, but um, I would go, you know, for the day, drive the cart around, not really doing too much, but just, you know, being there, feeling the atmosphere, and just having a having a good time at the course. And I would play a ton at the at ledges as well. And then when I turned. 16 and was able to get my work permit I started working in the clubhouse um you know cleaning carts gassing carts being a starter working inside just you know normal clubhouse work and then you know when I turned 18 I started working maintenance one it's a little bit better money um two it's just you know I liked it more I liked being able to use the machines and use my hands a little bit and, uh, you know, actually make a difference. Like, not that working in the clubhouse doesn't make a difference, but, you know, make a difference for how the golf course looks and, you know, make an impact on how everything is set up for the day. And I just, I, you know, had fun with it and it was a good, it was a good job to have. And then when the summer was up, you know, go back to school and, you know, have a good job for the next, summer and then you know during winter breaks I'd come back and start working with our mechanic that we had and you know he would teach me everything about the reels about machines and so I'd just honestly try and be a sponge when I was with him and try and learn as much as I could just because I had fun with it and I was kind of good at it (laughs) so I just kept, kept doing it. 
sounds like an incredible childhood and really an incredible training ground for so many years. Yeah, it's just any opportunity that I could be there, I would go just because it was it was fun and I was kind of a nerd and I like to learn things. So why not learn some more, right? You played college hockey, Division One hockey at Sacred Heart University, and you briefly played professionally uh, in, in a women's league that's primarily in Canada. Uh, where did hockey come in to the picture? If, if you're if you're at the course and you're golfing 36 holes a day and you're working at the course and you're learning about everything, how did, how did hockey fit into that? Where did that start? So the same buddy that I had that I would play golf with every day, he was from a big hockey family. And so, you know, all the, what I was talking about before with the faculty kids at the school, all of us, we all played hockey. So like in the winter it was hockey in the summer, it was either golf or lacrosse and I played golf. Um, and you know, so hockey was big, like number one sport all the time that you had went to hockey. But I mean, we were big on diversifying, diversifying your profile. And, you know, I played, Hockey, golf, softball, field hockey, you know, anything really. Um, but all three seasons were taken up during school, and then I would play golf in the summer. Um, but, yeah, so I started playing hockey when I was five, and then I worked my way up. And then I want to say in seventh grade, I started playing on both a boys' and a girls' hockey team. I was playing goalie. For the boys and I was skating out for the girls um so I always like doing a million things at a time because I you know don't like to rest at all <laughs> but yeah so I uh I went to went to prep school to play hockey and I ended up playing field hockey and softball there as well uh and then I yeah I went to Sacred Heart and played four years there had a great time uh and that set me up for the and uh, the CWHL draft, and so I was drafted to the Boston Blades and played there for two years, and then thusly retired at the prime age of, what, 24? <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, you retired from, from sports about two years later than a lot of people do, and six years later than even more people do, speaking of folks who stopped competing after college and after high school. Right. You squeezed a little bit more out of it. Yeah, and then after that, I went on and I, I coached. So I was the assistant at Ledges. I coached high school at Mount Hermon. I coached college at Nichols at the same, all at the same time. And then when I went to New Hampshire, I was the assistant coach up at uh, Plymouth State University while I was the assistant at Lockmere. Is really it? like spending a lot of time everywhere else but my house. <laughs> Has there been a time in your life that you haven't worked multiple positions at the same time? Right now. <laughs> this is it. This is the first time as you as you get settled into being a head superintendent, being the the top person at the course for the first time. Yep. I just all of my time is spent at the golf course and then if I have free time I'll go like today in the rain I went and helped set up for an event at the clubhouse instead of being outside so you know try and try and fill my time up as much as possible we asked a little bit about your dad being on site michael uh just a a lifer in the industry in in 
various positions. Your sister, I mentioned, is also at the ledges. She's seven years younger than you. She works primarily inside. She does uh, a lot of the work at the bar. She also does a lot of the accounting, right? Yeah, funny you say that because tomorrow I'm making her come fill divots for me. Ah. <laughs> sure. Does she have boots? Is she gonna wear? Is she gonna wear proper footwear? Yeah. Okay. If, even if she didn't have boots, I have plenty of pairs that she can use. <laughs> now, do you think she'll have any any transition to working outside from inside, or is she gonna be she gonna be an inside person if she stays involved? No, she's she's the smarter one of <laughs> all of us, so she, <laughs> she won't come and work outside. She'll she'll move tea markers and do trash and get divots for me, but. I think that's the extent of what she would want to do. She looks at me like, really, you're going to make me do what? So I'll take it. I'll take her help when she offers it. Is it more often than not a good thing or just kind of a, oh, man, these guys again, kind of feeling to have your family with you so much that they're always, you know, maybe half a mile or a mile away from you on the grounds? Well, I, I really don't them unless I make it a point to mm-hmm. like if I'm out on the golf course working no one like no one's gonna come out and bother me and if if they do something is probably wrong <laughs> so I don't want to see them you know if someone drives up to me and I'm like uh-oh what 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 happened that you're coming all the way out here to see me and it's not a phone call it's like usually it's I need the clubhouse lawn mode or something I'm like all right I'll drop what I'm doing but, you know, if I if I am to see them, it's because I'm stopping at the restaurant to walk in and talk to them or stopping at the office to go in and talk. But, you know, other than that, I really, you know, I'm busy. I'm doing my own thing, and they know that. And it's not like we're trying to bother each other. And if I go into the restaurant, it's usually a, hey, can I get a wa- an ice water? caught out and they're like yep here you go and i'll be on my way so it's not like we're sitting and having time to bicker about something or have family drama or whatever one staffing question because i feel like staffing comes up in every conversation no matter what the rest of the conversation is about these days it says in the story and a guy reported this that uh the employee retention rate at least before covid was about 70 percent uh, you still doing okay on on uh, employee retention, or are you having challenges like everybody else right now? I was doing really well, and then, you know, everyone started taking their vacations and not coming back from them, and, you know, my older guys are saying, you know, it's a, I need a break, so, you know, it's tough to say, no, you're not taking a break, I need you, but you know, right now I, uh, I'm okay. I, uh, like I said, I'm going to make Maddie come and fill divots for me. Um, I have another, one of the, one of the waitresses, my girlfriend actually (laughs) is one of the waitresses up there too. So it's really a fan of business, but I'm going to make her, she works with me up in New Hampshire. So she's good at cutting cups. She can mow green, she can walk mow, she can do it all. So I'm going to make her come in with put in some hours with me on the weekends too. Try to rope her in from inside to outside at some point, maybe. Yeah. So I, uh, I have both of them who are willing, you know, definitely a family business now, but they're both willing to come and help me out 
outside. And, you know, they both like to get out from the restaurant every once in a while. But if I can have people that I can rely on and, you know, I know that I've trained both of them before, so they know what I want and they're not going to, you know, be lazy and not do it the right way the first time. So it makes it a little easier on me to know that I can trust that they're going to go out and see what I see and get it done the right way. You told Guy, and this was one of the quotes in the story, that you don't necessarily search for athletes for your crew. You search for people who have a good eye for detail and who think or who you think are going to be good workers. And, and like you just said, you trained both of them well, and, and you have no doubts that they'll do exactly what you need. That said, your assistant is a former hockey player. You have at least two of your hourly crew members who played high-level ultimate Frisbee, and I'm guessing that's either a, a really good club college or maybe I know there's a little bit of a, a an adult competitive uh, ultimate frisbee community what what percentage of your crew do you think are either college or or even you know high level rec athletes folks who who do stuff outside of work I mean uh besides the retired guys all of them <laughs> really okay they uh they all have you know different personalities different you know ways of carrying themselves, but all of them I have found, you know, after digging back through some layers that they all were really competitive in, in sports. And some of, some of them surprised me and I was like, really, that's what you do? Well, by all means, it's, you know, you have a great work, work ethic. You're like, why not? Right. But, you know, it's not something I search for. I really don't even, it's not even a question I ask is if you, do you play sports? It's, you know, are you disciplined? Do you take um, direction well? Can you learn on the fly? If I correct something that you're doing, is it going to break your heart? And if so, I mean, I, can't, I don't know what to tell you. It's a tough world to live in if, you know, getting direction is going to break you. But, you know, I just I need good people more than strong athletes. Well, but everything you just described, too, is... is... It sounds like a healthy relationship between a coach and a coachable athlete, too, really. Well, yeah, that's, you know, I try and, well, I don't, you know, it's not uh, something that I try to do is mix coaching with trying to employ people, but it's just how my brain works. You know, I've coached for so long. I've coached, you know, I walk in the in the clubhouse and every girl that's on staff there I've coached in some sport you know, from softball to field hockey to ice hockey. Literally, I walk in and I'm like, I've coached all of you. But, you know, so it's it's not a part of your brain that you can shut off. It's just always, you know, do you really want someone who's going to be toxic on your team, no matter what kind of team it is? It's, you know, your sports team, your work team. You know, even if you're in a boardroom, do you want someone toxic on that team either? You know, it's just going to pull away from the, the work that's getting done. It's just not worth having a bad seed in the batch. You have this perspective at 27. I think that makes it even more impressive. It took me a little while longer than that to get to that point. That's a good reasoned level personality. Yeah, well, I, tr- I try to, you know, get lots of different experiences and see things from lots of points of view and sometimes it you know comes back to bite me and it's like I give people the benefit of the doubt way more than I should but 
constantly learning. Like I said before, I have no pride in saying that I did it all myself and I don't make mistakes. I literally just had a team meeting and I explained to them that, you know, I'm not perfect, they're not perfect, but I just need them to tell me when they're not perfect so we can try and fix it. But, you know, the biggest thing is just be open and let me know things and, you know, we can go from there. I'm not going to be mad. No one's perfect. But, you know, it took me a long time to try and figure that out. And, you know, once I got over the fact that nothing is going to be perfect, no one's going to do things the exact same way that I would. And, you know, you just got to got to roll with the punches that way. As you work through the rest of your first full season as a superintendent, what do you still need to fix? What do you need to tweak? What are you looking forward to? Uh I'm looking forward to the winter. Um, <laughs> you know, I feel like I've been trying to figure it out, figure it out, figure it out. And I think, you know, after getting everything done for one season, everyone keeps telling me that it's going to get easier. And that's something that sounds very nice right now, because right now I feel like I'm stressed every single minute of the day, but I think it comes with the job, you know, it's, if, he, if I wasn't stressed, it means I didn't care. So that's what I'm banking on right now. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing how, you know, the summer keeps progressing. I know that right now with all this rain, everything's going to start to pop. And, you know, a nice green golf course makes everyone happy. So I'm looking forward to that. Um And, you know, I really – so one of the big things that when I was coming back to Western Mass – that I was looking forward to is the foliage here is just unbelievable. And so we're situated right in the Connecticut River Valley with um, some mountains surrounding the golf course. So the colors are just unreal. And I think that's something I'm looking forward to. I just, I, you know, fall golf is just better than, better than any other time of the year. If you are the superintendent at the ledges, as long as your dad was, that would take you into your, early 40s. I don't want to push your career too far forward. I don't want to make you look too far ahead, but uh, what do you think the what do you think the future holds for you? Are you going to be a lifelong superintendent or, or are you going to move into other areas in the industry like your dad at some point, do you think? I don't know. I think that's, you know, I know that's something that um, has always interested me. You know, I always think that the bigger picture of golf has been in interesting like I really like golf course architecture and all that designing aspects of the of the courses I really like looking at the whole picture I mean I don't it's not that I don't like doing what I'm doing right now because you know I have to learn everything before I can just jump into these bigger roles and um, you know I have no problem doing what I'm doing it's just maybe one day there there's going to be more than just being a superintendent but you know, right now I uh, I like working through the challenges every day and seeing the product that we get to present after working hard is something that I like as well. And if you take too many steps away from that, it's not that you're not making an impact, but withdrawn from having your hands in the pot and just getting the stuff done and you physically seeing the difference that you're making. So... I don't know. It'll just it'll have to it'll have to be the right fit at the right time. But I don't like to jump around 
too, too much. Well, whenever the next chapter does start and you dive into it, whether it is uh, a GM position or a superintendent position at another club, or you've, you've built the ledgers up into a renowned course well beyond the borders of Massachusetts, or you get into architecture or whatever it is, uh, look forward to hearing more. Awesome, yeah. I uh, look forward to it as well. Amanda Fontaine is the superintendent at the Ledges in South Adley, Massachusetts. You can read more about her and her family in the July cover story, A Turf Homecoming, by GCI Editor-in-Chief Guy Cipriano. Amanda, thank you so much. Thank you. My next guest on this episode of Beyond the Page, a regular name, a regular voice to readers of the magazine and listeners of all the podcasts on the Superintendent Radio Network, our back page columnist, America's Greenkeeper himself, Matthew Wharton. Matthew, welcome back to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Matt. How are you today? Doing well, especially because we get to talk about two of your columns, your June column, Dear Dad kind of an open letter with a lot of allusions to the USGA and your July column, which we'll start with, which is speak softly. And it's all about language and euphemisms and who better to mention at the start of your column, if you're writing about euphemisms, than Richard Pryor and George Carlin. And George Carlin, you mentioned this in the column, had a great, great set back in the day in the late 90s, about soft language. And you know what? Let's just listen to a little bit of it. If you are not the biggest fan of Carlin, you can skip ahead 70 seconds. If you are a big fan of Carlin, stick with us. And uh, let's, let's listen to George Carlin. But it didn't happen. And one of the reasons, one of the reasons is because we were using that soft language, that language that takes the life out of life. And it is a function of time. It does keep getting worse. Give you another example. Sometime during my life, sometime during my life, toilet paper became bathroom tissue. I wasn't notified of this. No one asked me if I agreed with it. It just happened. Toilet paper became bathroom tissue. Sneakers became running shoes. False teeth became dental appliances. Medicine became medication. Information became directory assistance. The dump became the landfill. Car crashes became automobile accidents. Partly cloudy became partly sunny. Motels became motor lodges. House trailers became mobile homes. Used cars became previously owned transportation. <laughs> room service became guest room dining. And constipation became occasional irregularity. So all of those euphemisms in mind, Matthew, you picked this essentially because of the growing trend in the industry to stop calling chemicals chemicals and start calling them what exactly? <laughs> Plant protectants, I guess. Um, <laughs> okay. You know the funny the funny thing is, Matt, that that particular skit has lived in the back of my memory for 
for decades. I, I, I still remember the first time I, I caught that on HBO when I was much younger. And as I allude to in the column, you, you know, it's it, when you go from something like shell shock to battle fatigue to operational exhaustion to post-traumatic stress disorder, you see the trend of how uh, you're softening what the condition is. And I, I've, I've noticed, uh, just like George points out throughout the entire skit and some of the stuff we just listened to, uh, how it's per, uh, pervasive in everyday language. And I've always been the type that kind of scoffed at that, rolled my eyes at it, et cetera. But I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm, I guess I'm, it's kind of like if you can't beat them, join them. And um, what prompted me to write this was there were two superintendents recently, and by recently, I mean within the last two to three months. One was on the radio, and one was on another podcast. Uh, and these are two different superintendents, different parts of the country, et cetera, and both were answering a question from them. And they did a great job of talking about how we, the superintendent community, the professional turfgrass uh, management community, how, how we're doing a much better job of being responsible stewards. We, we only use things as needed, when needed, we're not over-applying, et cetera. But it was just kind of funny how they're saying, oh, yeah, you know, the, the general public thinks we, we overuse chemicals, and we don't. We only use chemicals this way or that way. And I got to thinking, I'm like, if we ever wanted the general public to, to come to understand that we're not overusing chemicals in an irresponsible manner, then maybe we just need to stop using the word altogether because cause I just think that uh, John Smith and Jane Doe, if I if I tell you today, well, Matt, I'm, I'm here to tell you, you know, I, I've, I've reduced my chemical usage by X percent. The only thing they heard was chemical usage. Mm -hmm. and, and they have their own perceptions of what those chemicals are. They don't, they don't have a clue the general public has no clue that modern-day plant health activators, plant protectants, turf stress preventers, etc., they don't have a clue how, how safe they are, how, how low the active ingredient rates are. All they know is what they think, and what they think is that, you know, it probably still has a skull and crossbones on the label. So when, how did you come up with plant protectants? Is that your term? Is that a term you heard from somebody else? Or, or why are we focused on this two-word alliterative term rather than chemicals? And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just curious, like, what is the origin of that term? I honestly don't know. It's, it's something that I heard used in that context at some point in the past. And just as I alluded to in the column, I think the first time I saw it in print, I, you know, spit out my coffee. Uh, you know, I, I, I just kind of went back to thinking about George and was like, yeah, here we go again. You know, how ridiculous is that? But, uh, you know, 
fast forward several years and, and kind of thinking about things differently from the from a different perspective, I'm, I'm beginning to think that you know, maybe maybe whoever coined that term originally was onto something, and, and, and it's time for us to catch up and, and, and start to uh, start to put it in our toolbox. A, a good friend of mine said that they once had an English teacher that said words are tools. And so, uh, you know, we need to think about the words that we use every day as we communicate what it is we do and why and use the right tools. Let's get the right tools in our toolbox and, and utilize them, use them to our advantage. I had the opportunity in some travels over the last few weeks to mention your column to other superintendents and turf pros. And I think one kind of latched onto it immediately, another kind of laughed, but realized, I think, the importance of it. And by the end of our time together, was saying, oh, plant protectants, you know, catching himself a little bit. What sort of feedback, what sort of conversations have you had about the chemicals becoming plant protectants transition here, whenever that starts, really? Well, I have had a couple of conversations with some, with some friends, um, you know, um, just kind of in advance. Of, of the column coming out, and um, you know, one one friend he had put a post on Twitter, and and I get it. I understood I, under, I understood exactly what he was trying to convey to his membership. He was trying to get them to understand that there was a really stretch of bad weather approaching, and as a result, the golf course was was protected that they need not worry. But the way he had phrased it. You know, it, it came across like, you know, a large number of acreage uh, had been treated with chemicals. And um, as a result, I I kind of reached out to him privately just to say, hey, I, I get what you're trying to say, but um, um, I want you to think about it this way. Uh, you'll you'll learn more when the column comes out, but here's a, here's a sneak peek of where I'm going and what I'm trying to. Uh, get across to folks, and and then uh, sure enough, I think about a week or ten days later, he had a different post on, and he had used plant protectants, and I just mm-hmm. gave him a thumbs up. You know, and, and I don't know if maybe there's a better term than plant protectants, but uh, like I said, somebody else coined that initially, so um, I just went with that. Obviously, not to pat you or ourselves on the back too much, but putting it on the back page of the magazine or putting it online, that'll help, certainly help the conversation a little bit. But big picture here, long term, is it going to take a, a panel at GIS or, as it's called now, the GCSAA Conference and Trade Show? Is it going to take conference calls? Is it going to just take regular conversation every time you see a colleague? Or, or what is it going to take to get more buy-in across the industry, do you think? At the end of the day, it just takes folks being cognizant of what the message is they're trying to deliver and then how they're delivering the message. Because at the end of the day, if you want the general public to understand that you're not overusing chemicals, you'll never achieve that by saying we only use chemicals in this manner or we only use a very small amount of chemicals. You, you've got to change the language. 
and, and change the narrative, change how, how you um, get your message across. And it, it, it's not going to happen overnight. Things, things like this never do. But, I, again, my whole, my whole fault was I just, I just kind of wanted to get a conversation started. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sure there's folks out there that probably will just roll their eyes and say, ah, that's ridiculous, and, you know, some old hardened old school person, and that's fine. Going forward, I just felt like this, this was a, a great opportunity to say, hey, uh, here's a way to think about it a little differently. And then if we all take this approach, maybe, just maybe, we can make a little bit uh, greater headway. Uh, I mean, for example, I just got an email day before yesterday. There is a, a bill getting ready to go before Congress that is going to be titled the Protect Our Children from Toxic Pesticides Act. And this bill, if it passes, would essentially overturn FIFRA. Hmm. You know, FIFRA is the um, Federal Insecticide, Rodenticide, and Fungicide Act that's been in place since the early 70s that governs everything we do as it relates to the, to the products that we're able to, to use and apply safely according to label directions governed by the EPA. But just look at the language in the name of the new bill, toxic pesticides. And, and don't get me wrong, I, you know, every, everyone needs to be protected. But like I said, the, the, the manufacturers, the, the research and development and the manufacturers today, we're not poisoning. It's really scary to think of what this world would be like living in without the ability to manage pests. And by pests, I mean everything from, from insects, weeds, disease, etc. Well, folks have not read it already. It will be online this week. The back page column, Speak Softly, the America's Greenkeeper column, obviously on the actual back page of the physical magazine, which should be in your inbox, your real mailbox, shortly. You also wanted to talk about your June column, Dear Dad, which you wrote, I guess, five days before writing Speak Softly. You were on a bit of a run. There's a lot in here. And before we started recording, you said, oh, I could have talked for an hour about this, because it really is about your almost 30-year relationship with the USGA. You joined in 1992 while you were a student at Virginia Tech, and it's sort of a letter that treats the USGA as a father figure, and there's a lot of interesting analogies and allusions in here. Um, If folks haven't read it, it's already online, golfcourseindustry.com slash magazine in the June issue. But what, what prompted this column and... Matthew, I'm just going to say it. You have a very complicated relationship with the USGA, it sounds like. Well, that's, that's probably true. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the wheels for that column started turning shortly after the, uh, 
the announcement about the partnership with the Green Section and mm -hmm. um, Global Golf Advisors. And so the, the, the wheels started turning in this particular column. It sort of lived in my head for a few weeks before I, I finally figured out a way to, to kind of get what was inside of me out. But uh, and I, I had several people that reached out to me, and I, I will say this: I, I, were, I was sitting at home on the sofa one evening, and out of the blue, I, I got text messages from past green section agronomists and current green section agronomists that just out of the blue texted me to say, "What a great call! Well said." That 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 was pretty cool. That, that made me feel pretty good. But you'll notice there's no mention of that partnership in there. I just felt like it, it wasn't the right thing to do. Um, there was plenty of other things that I could say and get my point across as it relates to the USGA. But, you know, the, and if I'm being honest, going back to September of last year when they had the U.S. Open at Wingfoot, I was just a little, I was kind of caught off guard and surprised, if you will, by the inclusion of barstool sports with some of the USGA stuff. I've got a, a friend with the USGA that we, we worked together when we were involved with uh, as a co-host site for the 2018 US Mid-Am. We, we've stayed in touch and we talk on the phone occasionally and text. And I, I remember reaching out to him and I was like, barstool? Really? And um, he's like, hey man, you know, they're, they're bringing eyeballs. And I was like, yeah, I get it. But it just seemed like such a odd partnership, knowing what the USGA always was. And so I, I think therein kind of you get to the to the gist of of, of the column or, or the letter, so to speak, where it's kind of like I think you've forgotten who you are, Dad, and you're you're just trying way too hard to be somebody you're not. And that, that's just my take on it. Or euphemisms. Well, you you did two write columns. in there. Two yeah. columns go together. Yeah, you you did write in there. Please get off the bar stool, lowercase b, and back to work. And I read that a few times. I'm like, is he talking about? He must be. And it turns out you are. And I mean, you're right. They do bring eyeballs, but there is a. Uh, again, it's complicated. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I I get it. You know, there's a there's an entire generation. That that's their that's their thing, and I get that. But it just seems so far off base as it relates to you know what's the old adage? Your father's USGA. What's that old ad? This is not your father's Oldsmobile. Again, I'm sure. I'm I don't know what it. Math, I, I didn't. I didn't know if there was actually an original. Phrase, I guess. I guess there was. I've never really thought about it. But yeah, this is not your father's blank. Yeah. Yeah. This new this new version of the USJ is not your father's USGA. Uh, and, and I guess it remains to be seen. I will say this: I'm a big, big fan of Mike Warren. Uh, I think what he did as the commissioner of the LPGA over the last decade is phenomenal, and I have a lot of faith 
in him, and, and I'm I'm very hopeful that the USGA going forward under Mike Wan's leadership is going to be something that everyone's going to uh, love, appreciate, and respect. Uh, I, I do firmly believe that. But I, I do feel like he, he's coming in with a little bit of an awkward transition because, you know, some some of the more recent decisions have, have kind of, you know, he's, he's got some decisions to make as to whether or not, you know, uh, did did we pivot in the in the right direction or do we need to pivot back? I, I don't know. I guess we'll I guess we'll all find out. Stay tuned. Anything else from that dear dad column? Any of the illusions, the veiled references that you want to unpack or mention if folks have or haven't read it? Well, I mean, uh, I'll I'll share with you a little bit of a backstory. Uh, I, I think I referenced that I stormed out of the room in 2005 and the whole point so let's go back to June 2004 the United States Open was at Shinnecock and uh, you could probably uh, you could probably put me on hold and call our other columnist and dear friend Tim Morgan and get him <laughs> on the line we could, have a, we could have a party chat and uh, you know Tim could share with you a little bit more intimate details, considering he was championship agronomist at that time. But they pretty much let the greens get away from them. And um, I don't know how, you know, I'm not sure if the general public is aware or not, but if you watch Golf Channel, during major championships, they that week they have a show they call Live From. Mm-hmm. And Maybe folks are or are not aware how long Live From has been going on. But I remember sitting at home watching Live From the U.S. Open in 2004. And it's Saturday evening. The third round has concluded. They're on the air live. It's dark. And those flags on top of the clubhouse are just going nuts. You can see how windy it is. And I looked at my wife, and I said, oh, my goodness. And she's like, what? And I said, look at those flags. And she's like, what about them? I said, honey, USJ has got a reputation for just not putting water on the golf course. And I said, if they don't put any water on that golf course tonight, I said, things could get really ugly tomorrow. And then sure enough, when you, you watch the final round on Sunday and, you know, Phil probably should have won a U.S. Open at that point, but things got away from him. Um, and uh, Retief Goosen made more putts than any human should have ever made on those greens that day. You know, hats off to him. Uh, but, but they did. The greens got away from him. So here it is, February 2005. We're at we're at the Golf Industry Show, and the USJ used to have a, a wonderful presentation. I mean, it was always circled on my agenda to attend every year. It was it was really some of the best education you were going to get at the show every year. And Jim Morris looks at the whole whole room and tells us, he goes, "You superintendents are getting your greens too fast, and uh, you know, you you guys are." creating a problem 
your, your, your greens are too fast, and we don't want you to get them too fast. We want you to be focused on smooth. Greens should be smooth, not fast. And I just thought to myself, the hypocrisy. You're going to tell us that we're the problem. I think I think it was you guys that sort of, you know, lost control of things uh, the last time you, you, you had the opportunity. And yeah, I, I, I took a stance and got up and walked out. But that, that's sort of the backstory, if you will, of that, that reference. Yeah. There's a lot in there. As you said, you got some great feedback from a lot of folks within the organization. So if folks have not read that one, that is your June column, Dear Dad, golfcourseindustry.com slash magazine, and the uh, July column, Speak Softly. Before we let you go, it's always great to have you on. Is there anything else, Matthew, you want to talk about Dear Dad, the USGA, a 30-year relationship there, euphemisms, plant protectants, George Carlin. We've covered a lot in 25 minutes. Wow. That's, uh, you're, you're right. Time flies. Felt like we'd only been on, on here for about five minutes. <laughs> uh, it's, always, it's always a pleasure to speak with you, Matt. I, I, I really enjoy it. I appreciate the opportunity to come on and, uh, and, and give the give the readers just a, a little bit more as, as the title of the podcast says you know beyond the page there's just a little bit more of uh, whether it was what I was thinking or, or what I was trying to convey or, or maybe the backstory behind it but uh, now I hope hope everyone uh, gets a chance to check out both columns uh, I hope they enjoy them and if any, hey and if, if it sparks a conversation great if somebody wants to Give me a call. I'm happy to talk. Uh, shoot me an email. Or you, get, you can always find me on Twitter. At CGC Greenkeeper. And there's Twitter, there's email, there's phone. We're less than, what, four and a half months now from the return of the Carolinas conference and show, which will be a blast. And then the now GCSAA conference and trade show, what used to be called GIS, is... Uh, I think, what, about seven months? Seven months from now? So we're getting there. We're getting there. We're, get, we're, we're getting there. Uh, normal gets a little closer each day. Yeah. And I know you got soaked this morning. You went home. You washed some clothes. You hung up some clothes. So folks, if they follow you on Twitter, know that you're always mentioning the weather. And it seems like you've gotten a lot of rain this year. Well, we've had our, we've had our dry spells, but uh, we... Uh, we're, Charlotte's going to have an unusual uh, Independence Day uh, weekend in the sense that a typical Independence Day holiday in Charlotte would be mid to upper 90s and very humid. Um, it is cloudy. It was, it's in the 70s. It won't get out of the 70s today. The rain that we got this morning is associated with a, a cold frontal boundary that's coming through. And then tonight we're going to get down in the low 60s. Hmm. And the high tomorrow will be maybe 82 with very low humidity. 82 degrees on the third day of July in Charlotte, North Carolina. That's almost unheard of. That's very, um, very cool. It'll be 90 by Monday. The fifth, but uh, but we we'll take every little break we can get. So, yeah. 
I just remember summers, I was on the other side of the state for a few years, and I just remember always pushing triple digits, probably started July to mid-August. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I'm a, my, my heart does go out to all those folks up in the Pacific Northwest. And, oh, absolutely. In the northern portions of the Midwest, it's, uh, you know, my understanding is they're, they're experiencing uh, some heat unlike ever experienced before. So it's just, uh, you know, hope, hope and pray it breaks soon and, uh, you know, hang in there, everyone. Well, Matthew Wharton, always a pleasure to have you on. Read America's Greenkeeper. Follow him on Twitter at CGC Greenkeeper. Uh, thank you so much, Matthew. Thanks, Matt. Always a treat, man. My thanks again to Amanda Fontaine and to Matthew Wharton for sharing their time and their perspective. And my thanks to all of you for listening to all the podcasts on the Superintendent Radio Network. New episodes of Off the Course, Greens with Envy, Tartan Talks, and Beyond the Page drop just about every Tuesday. If you want to read more about Amanda Fontaine and more from Matthew Wharton, our July issue is online now at www.golfcourseindustry.com slash magazine. With those stories, plus features about a Midwestern short course that turns on the lights, managing and designing tees, why you shouldn't pinch pennies when it comes to protecting the turf, and more. And we'll have more stories and news available in our Fast and Firm email newsletter delivered every Tuesday to your inbox. You can sign up directly on our homepage at www.golfcourseindustry.com. Golf Course Industry is produced by Guy Cipriano and me, Matt Lowell. Our columnists are incredible Terry Buchan and Rita Lozier, Bradley S. Klein, Tim Morrigan, and American screenkeeper Matthew Wharton. We have some outstanding regular contributors to Tyler Bloom, Trent Bouts, Lee Carr, Ron Furlong, Judd Spicer, John Torsiello, Anthony Williams, and Rick Wolfel. Our publisher is Dave Zai. Our intern is Jack Fleckler. Our sales team includes Russ Warner and Andrew Hatfield. Jim Blaney designs the magazine. Lori Scala and Caitlin Sellers make sure everything goes where it should. Avril Braden and Christina Warner make sure you all receive the magazine. Kelly Antle makes sure we all get paid. Michaela Dodrill handles advertising production. Irene Sweeney does more than anybody in this building to be straight. Anna Kolar, Cody Minnick, Tom Bauman, and Patrick Brion make up our IT team. Nick Adams, A.G. Alexander Garrett, Clark Quick, Jay Boyden, and Kevin Caslow are our online and video experts. Our president is Chris Foster. And above all else, we could not do what we do without all of you. Thanks so much for listening. We walk her every day into a shady place. He's not dark. It's hard, 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 hard.